Super Talk Mississippi media production. Specializing in Ford, Nissan, Chrysler, Dodge, Jeep, and Rams. CorinthAutoGroup.com and FordOfCorinth.com, where cars and happy drivers meet. Visit us now in person or online with the experience you deserve. This is Gerard Gibbert, and thank you for listening to Middays here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbard, along with a rhino in the Element Wealth Studios, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Friday Eve. Almost there, we are. Hmm. Well, so much going on here in the Magnolia State across the nation. Where do we start? How about this very uh, late-breaking news here? Representative Adam Schiff of the great state of California has announced he will throw his hat into the ring as a candidate for the United States Senate. Oh, yeah, that's what we need. The king of the Russian conspiracy theory. Going to put it in there for Senate. Senator Schiff Spinmeister. <laughs> he may be the best at spinning. The problem is he's wrong about everything. So yesterday, Rhino, we had a bit of a discussion, a just continuing discussion, honestly, about this is small fraction of people that seem to be controlling, influencing, at a minimum influencing, and the influence is resulting in control. Well, First Lady Jill Biden has donated her inaugural ensembles to the Smithsonian. (laughs) You should know that they are accompanied by (laughs) the matching masks that she had made, and they're in the Smithsonian. So it's a big announcement, a big ceremony for this yesterday, and it started out with one of the top brass of the Smithsonian. I looked for the sound. I couldn't find it. I just happened to catch it, and maybe you can, but (laughs) she started out with this protracted apology, citing the names of all the Indian tribes that originally owned the land on which they were gathered for this event. And its tribes, I'll have to admit, I'm no scholar when it comes to the history of the indigenous people of the country and the various tribes, many of which formed and then became extinct, right? They killed off each other, conquered each other. And, of course, 
I guess is part of our development of the country as well. I mean, there's no secret about that. I mean, it's estimated with the explorers coming over from Europe that as many as 90% of the indigenous peoples died due to smallpox alone. I can believe that. I mean, disease and widespread disease for which there were no cures at the time, of course. Yeah, just take out a whole population, as as it did in Europe. Uh, so devastated Europe. But she goes through <laughs> this apology. And when you listen to it, it's like, oh, what are, the, what are they doing here exactly? And then, oh, I saw Jill Biden on the stage. And then, oh, okay, I get it. It's something for Jill Biden. And it was the <laughs> donation of her inaugural ensembles. But more critically, really, it was to call attention to the masking of the era. Because we remember, we were still pretty much masked up as a country. And so these dresses are on display with the matching masks. Of course, they're cloth masks because you really can't make a what is an an N one that provides some degree of protection. It is said that doesn't really have all the all the uh, adornments that you have on these cloth masks, which have now been determined to offer like zero protection. But this apology, and so. It harkened me back to the sound we played here, I think it was a couple of years ago now, when Microsoft was having, this is when everybody was meeting remotely, canceling all the in-person business conferences, and Microsoft was meeting. You remember, (laughs) each one of those moderators and presenters introduced themselves and Went, went through a description of the clothing they were wearing and their ethnicity and their their facial hair, if they had any, and their pronouns. Remember that? It was awesome. And that's what it reminded me of. So is this going to become a thing now? We're going to apologize every single time we have a meeting to I mean, people that people aren't even are, on the yeah. planet anymore. I mean, I don't even think these tribes exist anymore. We start out by apologizing to the this, the that. It's incredible. It's a and, giant waste of time and energy. Well, that's the point. Like we, what does the apology accomplish? Does it make you feel better? I guess it makes them feel better. It doesn't oh, do anything man. to stop and change the past because you can't. Uh, exactly. And it also fails to acknowledge that all land is conquered land, which you pointed out so eloquently and accurately yesterday. So, again, is that like a small number of people that think this is appropriate and now we've changed the way we conduct meetings? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, now, of course, you'll be not surprised to learn that school dress codes have gotten the attention of the feds. They're getting involved in this. Some are saying that certain prohibition of clothing items is sexist, racist, and classist. Sure it is. Everything is, isn't it? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We should just make a list of everything that's not. It would be a blank list, I think, at this point. Oh, yeah, you name a random inanimate object and somebody (laughs) is offended it exists or that it has some loose connection to somebody they dislike. Oh, gosh. So it turns out that some 93% of the nation's schools have some sort of dress code policy in place. About half of them strictly enforce it. 
That's from some research conducted by the Government Accountability Office. Some have, some schools have some variation of the bans against, for example, spaghetti strap shirts, short skirts, leggings, muscle shirts, sagging pants, or certain clothing colors or logos. I think hoodies are another that fall into that category. So the federal government is looking into getting involved in these school uniform policies because apparently some students feel unsafe. Unsafe by, like, not being able to wear leggings or really super short skirts or spaghetti strap dresses. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around it. So they're saying that perhaps... These school dress codes are discriminatory. Ah, of course. Everything's discriminatory. The government says that black and Hispanic students are more likely to attend schools with rules around dress codes than white peers, and that the policies create, quote, inequitable enforcement of discipline. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So now they're saying that the school dress codes make the school environment less equitable and safe for students. Equitable. Is there such How in the thing? How does a spaghetti strap or a short skirt equal equitable? I don't know. So they're also worried you should know the GAO is about rules concerning hairstyles, head coverings, They say they can disproportionately impact black students and those of certain religions and cultures in uniform checks that often require adults to get involved in the evaluation, the analysis of the clothing to determine if it's in in compliance with the school dress code. Is this really a big problem? And that's where I'm getting here. It's like, how many people are or been out of shape about this, that are demanding changes here. You know, sometimes it's just, you know, you just got to get over it here. But during the mask era, oh, yeah, that's different there, right? You got to wear that mask. Keep that mask on that toddler. <laughs> as, they, as they pick their nose through it, right? And now we've learned that not only was that completely ineffective... For whatever the purpose was, I guess stopping the spread, it it says led to students being dramatically behind in their education. But nobody seems to care about that. It's more about equity. What about the equity of kids who can't freaking read and write? On the six bar text line from the six oh one. Yep, I knew it. Khaki pants are racist. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. We've got Uh-oh. Hal Miller, the president of the Mississippi Trucking Association, in the Element Well Studios after this break. Please, please stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's do it. Breaker 1-9, this here's a rubber duck. You got a copy on me, big fan? Come on. We're 
mercy sakes alive, looks like we've got us a convoy. It was a dark of the moon on the 6th of June in a Kenworth pulling logs. Cab over Pete with a reefer on and a Jimmy hauling hogs. We is heading for Bear on I-10, about a mile out of Shaky Town. I says, Pigpen, this here's a rubber duck, and I'm about to put the hammer down. Well, you know, I'll have to admit, Rhino, I miss the old CB days. Now we have these phones. It's not any fun. <laughs> and joining us now, Hal Miller, president of the Mississippi Trucking Association. Hal, always good to see you, and thanks for coming in today. So, Thank you. Uh, human trafficking, still a major problem in the state of Mississippi, in the country, and uh, the trucking industry has uh, really gotten involved in this in a positive way to try to, to eliminate this just really painless activity. Right. And it's something that we're very proud of being a part of. About 10 years ago, we got engaged in an organization called Truckers Against Trafficking. And they had only been established a couple of years. And they have a neat story in that it was a mother who educated her daughters, adult daughters, on what human trafficking was. And as a family, they decided they needed to get engaged. And once they studied, they realized that our industry was a great place to start. And so they established Truckers Against Trafficking back, I think, in 2009, and we plugged in around 2012 or so. And they have trained over a million people on what human trafficking is, how to spot it, once you spot it, what to do about it. And each component is so important. Once you teach somebody what human trafficking really is, it really is a paradigm shift in what you see in a lot of things, like the sex trade, thinking, well, there are no victims there. You find out very quickly, almost always, there's a victim there. And once you understand that, you find a passion to get engaged with it. And then once you get engaged with it, it's critical that you know how to spot it and then what to do when you spot it. A lot of times folks want to be a hero and jump right in and save that person. Well, that puts everybody in danger. So they're trained on what to do once they see it. And it's really neat. After they trained a million people in the in, in our industry, they started reaching out, and they're now training people in the in the bus industry, the hmm. uh, in schools. They're training law enforcement, uh, the energy sector, uh, truck stops. They've expanded, uh, for lack of better description, their ministry. But it's just really amazing. We've we've trained over ten thousand people in the state of Mississippi wow. in the transportation industry so far. Well, and so the the thing about it is, as you and I have discussed this before, and, and we've discussed it with uh, Secretary of State Michael Watson, of course, Attorney General Lynn Fitch, is that it, it's uh, you're likely uh, around it, mm-hmm. and you just don't know it. And so, what this uh, this training does is help you recognize uh, the red flags, if you will, that say, yeah, yeah this is suspicious. Yep, you're right. And and the neat thing about it is they reached out to the trucking industry, and the truck drivers in particular are just the salt-of-the-earth good people that want to do good and want to do right and want to help people. And if you don't believe me, you go back to 9-11. Shortly after that, the federal government came to the trucking industry and said, train your drivers on how to spot the terrorist activity because they knew the drivers would be – everywhere all the time and really are very patriotic uh when you think about natural disasters once you see the first responders get in there who's the very next person to fall in the truck drivers jump up and they're there risking their own well-being to help people covid you think back during covid when everybody else was cowering at home worried about what was going to happen next the truck drivers were out there it's they just feel like they want to do something so they've picked the perfect group of folks to be a part of the the solution which 
Speaking of part of solution, you mentioned um, uh, so many people in the state that are involved. You've got Department of Public Safety and the MBI, MBI have uh, established a task force of which we're a part of. Uh, the uh, Attorney General and the Department of Public Safety created their Be, a, Be the Solution program of which we're a part of. Uh, the Secretary of State just came out with his MBAT program, Mississippi yeah. Business Against Trafficking. We're a part of that now. Well, you just find that place where you can fit in and do something. Uh, uh, I heard a speaker just earlier this week say, "You find, you figure out first of all what your what your passion, what's driving you. Then you find your circle of influence. Then you engage wherever you can. Sure, and and that's what we've tried to do is just whatever, wherever we can engage to to help fight this. Our industry does that. So the MBAT summit. Was just held this week, That's earlier correct. this week, right? That's correct. So tell us how how that go. It went great. Uh, there were, I'm guessing, between 150 to 200 people attending it. Uh, had uh, the University of Southern Mississippi uh, through their social services, uh, social work uh, uh, program down yeah. there. They've now got a human trafficking um, um, course, if you will, not course, but a whole line of courses to prepare okay. people for fighting human trafficking and they were educating the group on that and they had a group of us come and share from the private sector kind of what's going on in the private sector and then uh, they unveiled a film that night that uh, that showed again the truth of human trafficking have, have the truckers been receptive to this and 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 really kind of gotten involved personally is there is there making their routes yes uh, and are they and they're reporting they're following the the guidelines they are and uh, the truckers against trafficking tries to keep up with as many as they can of of, of actual uh, situations where their engagement the truckers <laughs> engagement has saved people and you can go to the website truckers against trafficking.org and read about some of those and it is absolutely first of all it's horrifying when you learn more about it and I dare everyone to go and, and, and just spend 15 minutes on that website learning about it, and then yeah. all of a sudden you want to get engaged. But, yes, the truckers have saved many, many people um, uh, from human trafficking, mm-hmm. and it's, it's just it's, – Well, you know, it feels like that the, the average person sees human trafficking as, as something associated with, uh, with our border with Mexico. I mean, that's probably where you, you get the most reports of human trafficking, and no doubt that's going on, and that's – I guess that's um, kind of more the common understanding of it and perception of it, but that's not really what it is when you drill into it, and it's happening right here, and there are people that are residents of the state of Mississippi that are, are perpetrating these crimes. And it's beyond my imagination in some cases. You actually have families trafficking their children and grandchildren so that they can have money for whatever, uh, you know, to, to feed whatever habit or whatever else. And when you start hearing those stories, it will absolutely stun you. It's I think a lot of people really don't want to acknowledge yeah. what human trafficking is because it's so horrific and so close to home. Um, but once it's once you've seen it, you can't unsee it and it's just a matter of what are you going to do about it at that point you can run from it but you'll never forget it so we we got some strong laws passed Mm -hmm. enacted two three years ago i know the speaker was uh, a big driver of that is there anything else that uh, we need to do along those lines or or anything else for your industry that you're looking at well you're right the speaker really did a great job of of pushing the agenda once it, he was exposed to it. And then you've got several other elected officials. Michael Watson yeah. is super passionate about it. Um, Lynn Fitch is super pa- passionate about it. Um, Sean Tindall, who's uh, uh, the commissioner of DPS, he is passionate about it. Once you get these leaders educated, yeah. 
they, they can't help but to want to get engaged one way yeah. or the other. And all of those people I just mentioned have created pathways to help us do what we're doing and help other people doing. Okay. Um, you just have to find that place. I mean, even as small as we work with a group called uh, Centers for uh, Violence Prevention. Uh, Sandy Middleton runs that group. Yeah. And Sandy pulls together a bunch of people that serve those people who have been rescued from it and helps them in the next phase of life. But she also works with law enforcement agencies to pull them together to kind of create these think tanks to, number one, discuss what's going on, and, number two, what are you seeing from these survivors and what can we do to help and it's as simple as we just provide them a place to meet and feed them sandwiches when they come once a month. Just anything you can do to help these different organizations in any way possible, I just challenge people to find that their place and do it. Yeah, it's incredible, and, and uh, it, it's sad that it's happening right in our midst, and, and we, we don't know. You know, we haven't been educated, the average person has, but the, but the truck drivers who um, tend to frequent the places where you, you could see it, and they've been trained to right. recognize it. And then they get involved, which is incredible. So that that's making a difference in the organization, the MBAT efforts, and so forth. It's making a difference. It is. It is. And and beyond just training the drivers, you'll find if you look a lot of the trucks that are trucks that are owned by these member companies that participate in the truckers against trafficking program, they put decals on the side of their truck, so that if there is someone caught up in the sex trade on the human trafficking, they walk by that truck, they see that number that they can call okay. and say, "Help me, I'm trapped. Get okay. me out of here." So just that some. Something as simple as that. Um, uh, And, again, it's just every little piece helps. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I think we have an obligation as society to – Put an end to this mm-hmm. and stop it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and when we see it, we got to speak up. And that's what these these folks are doing. Yep. The truckers. Anything else you're working on uh, with the legislature this year? Uh, d- most of what we're doing is just paying attention from a defensive standpoint. Uh, yeah. Fortunately, the state of in the state of Mississippi, we're we're looked upon favorably and, and rightly so. I mean, without without trucks, is there's sure. nothing. Sure. Um, it's really more a matter of you pay attention to the different pieces of legislation that are coming through to make sure there's not some unintended consequences to that. legislation legislation that nobody intended to do and then protect the industry from that yeah i appreciate you coming in and uh please uh extend our gratitude uh, to the truckers out there you're so right our our country doesn't exist without them and thank you we're grateful for uh their perseverance and their willingness to to step in and work when so many of us were at home certainly during during the COVID era and i just hope that the industry is uh, is doing better and can fight off these high diesel prices as well. Appreciate it, Hal. Thanks, Thank man. you. Yeah. Thank you. We'll come right back with more here in the Element Well Studios on Middays. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm eastbound up. Watch on Bandit Run. This program. Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge, 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 when I got there, the lot was bare, but the salesman said, hold on. For a little cash, I got a two-tone ash out behind my barn. If the devil danced in 
empty pockets, he'd have a ball in mind. Welcome back to Middays, dancing in the empty pocket. Sam from Mount Hermon on the C Spire text line, which is, of course, 601-879-4395, says, Hello, Gerard, the one rule I get a kick out of is the no red ink to mark test papers. What's the difference if you got the answer wrong? There are no wrong answers, Sam. Come on. We don't we don't count off for the wrong answers. That would be inequitable. Oh gosh. It's nuts. Every day. Something else. So there's a pastor in North Carolina that has absolutely obliterated a school board for pushing this equity agenda. It's an African American pastor and he says Things aren't better. We can't read. We can't write. We can't do math, the students. But yet, you got a whole bunch of money to spend on the consultants and create this these DEI, the diversity, equity, and inclusion departments. Every corporation in this country has one. Every public sector enti- entity, virtually. And it is, of course, woven in every apparatus of the federal government. So it's the public sector, it's the private sector, it's every higher ed institution. I challenge you to find one that doesn't have this. And these are highly compensated people. What are they doing exactly? Well, this pastor calls them out. And he says, the money should be going to education. You know, reading, writing, arithmetic. Not all this inclusion talk and going out of your way to make trans people comfortable. And so he just lambasts them, and he correctly describes it as cultural Marxism. We got some sound? Here, here we go. 78% of third through eighth grade black students are not proficient in math in Wake County. We're wasting taxpayer dollars putting money towards this diversity office that's not benefiting those who need it the most. And as we talk about inclusion and making sure that the trans student feels comfortable and the queer student feels comfortable, what does that have to do with reading, writing, and arithmetic. As we are in, oh, as we as we are teaching cultural Marxism and grooming children to be the next pervert, we are damaging our kids in this public school system. And it needs to stop. Uh, I mean, can you say it better than that? I don't think so. And you know by now, likely, that Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida is under fire for banning an African-American studies course. And now, what's this guy, Crump, the civil rights lawyer? He's, he's shaking them down, of course. He's got him some, <laughs> some plaintiffs. And you know, he's pulling in the money. He's going to represent them in suing the state and the governor. And... It's another situation where nuance is important. I don't think 
anybody in this country that I know that's clear thinking and obviously would include, and fair-minded, would include the governor in this, there's no objection to teaching accurate history, American history. And that includes, of course, the African-American segment of our population. They have a history as well. And I don't know that I've seen anybody deny that slavery existed, and I've yet to find a person that said they supported it. There may be out there. I've just never seen them. You think there's anybody out there that still thinks that was a good thing? I mean, that could be. Oh, I've, yeah, in the Middle East. Well, yeah, exactly. Guitar. <laughs> because it's alive and well. But, uh, and so, I yes, we need to teach it. We need to acknowledge it. No doubt. I don't think anybody objects to that. The governor doesn't. But this is the nuance that's missing. Included in this course is a call to shut down the prisons. Empty them out. And, of course, they also want to focus on all this sexual intersectionality stuff. You've seen that? They want, to, they want to include that? Well, what the heck does that got to do with African-American studies? Nothing. Or studying the history. Nobody objects to that. But, but again, oh no, you've got to include black queer studies in there. Why? And, and they're defending it, including the federal government and Kareem Jean-Pierre the spokesperson for the White House. And so DeSantis just said, no, this this isn't right. Uh, and this is really not an accurate part of the African-American history in this country. You've got an agenda here, duh. And if you just wanted to stick to teaching the the factual history, no problem. But when you start inserting all these radical gender ideology agendas and the, the radical, complete lunacy of just shutting down the prisons and releasing everybody. Well, it's because there's too many black people in them. Well, if, you know, it's not a racist thing. If they committed the crime, they got to go to prison. They broke the law. So much for equity, equal treatment under the law. You broke the law, you got to pay the price. Blind justice says, we don't care what your race is, what your ethnicity, your gender identity is. That's the way it's supposed to work. I'm sorry that you don't like the statistics. Well, let's figure out how to fix the problem. Quit committing a crime. Now, some may say, you're just being racist. No, I'm just looking at the facts. This is just data. Isn't that what they always tell us? It's got to be data-driven. It's got to be based on lived experiences. Well, you committed a crime. That's the lived experience. And that's why crime is rampant. I saw, you may have seen this report, a video of an Ace Hardware owner. And somebody goes in there and they just start helping themselves. This is just a small, single business owner. And he's in there with his team. You know, they've got the familiar Ace vests on. You're familiar with that. It's kind of their, their, their branding. It's kind of cool. Got their logo on it. Sort of crimson in color. And this guy's just, yeah, I'm helping myself. And he walks past the owner who happens to be standing at the double doors. 
and there's a, a foyer, two sets of doors. And he walks through there, kind of bumps into him, and then the owner's help runs, and all three of them tackle the guy. You're taking stuff that doesn't belong to you. You can't do that. What's sad is that a business owner has to consume their time with that. You can't make any money when you're consumed with keeping people from stealing stuff that you own. That's just moral depravity. But they think they're entitled to it because we have a government that tells them they are. They're not helping the situation by lecturing the rest of us about, oh, yeah, well, that's just fair, that's equitable, that's reparations. No, that's stealing. Not only is it breaking the law, it's sinning. But I know you guys don't care about that. It doesn't seem like. So this is unfortunately sweeping this country but don't worry, Rhino, because Joe Biden today is going to address the nation in a couple hours, and he's going to tell us how great everything is and with a focus on the economy. So the GDP report came out this morning. It's a little better than expected. And the jobs report, unemployment claims, fell a bit. The market's not sure what to make of that because, on the one hand, the those that are more pessimistic about the market will say, well, the Fed sees this and says, nope, got to keep going up on the rates. GDP is, is a little higher than expected, and we're not killing enough jobs. <laughs> we got to go up on the rates. And then you got others that say, you know, the Fed is going to have to just realize this is just the way we are. But here's what, the, here's what Joe Biden is going to do today. This is what I, I believe. He's going to really tout the recent inflation report, which does show that inflation has moderated of late, but he will fail to acknowledge that it's still 6.5% more than it was last year, and that real wages aren't keeping up with that. He won't acknowledge that. He'll tout that, and he'll talk about how he drove the price of gas down by releasing reserves, our strategic reserves, out of the SPR, he'll discuss that and won't pay attention to the likelihood that the price of oil is on the way up. Coming right back on Middays in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Gerard Gibbert. Going beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone to midday super top mississippi yeah from the ceasefire text line wayne in the 228 he touches on something i think we mentioned yesterday totally agree uh that it's outrageous and that is that the california governor's wife that would be golden boy gavin newsom is uh the wife is promoting porno in schools yeah i've seen that she's produced some some video content that's got all kinds of radical gender stuff in it. 
You know, I think in our state that sort of stuff is not as prevalent, and I, I'm pleased that we have some legislation such as the the bills that are have been filed that would prohibit gender reassignment surgery, and it would impose fines, even possibly revocation of license of health care providers that participated in and delivered gender reassignment surgery. And then there, it's possible that uh, other legislation looks at, at changing the child abuse statutes to include parents that were complicit in having child uh, having their children undergo gender reassignment surgery. But this, this stuff's happening all over the country. And while we might, and, and I pray that we have some success at getting these bills passed to prohibit such surgery on minors now, on minors, make that very clear. I believe that's just protecting children, just like we do with other laws that protect children. Children, unfortunately, in this case, could, in in the cases of gender reassignment surgery, could be encouraged by parents that think this is the right thing to do. And the children don't have any protection when it's their parents. The only protection they could get would be from the law. But I mean, it's against the law for parents to take their underage kid to get a tattoo. There you go. And there are a number of other laws, and they're designed to protect against abusive parents that regrettably see fit to commit such abuses on their own flesh and blood. That is um, it's horrifying when you think about it. But it happens. And the state... In that case, I think, is compelled to protect children, just like we do in so many other situations, because this is irreversible. And you could ruin and are, in my view, ruining a child's life permanently. But in, gosh, in some of the other states, it's being encouraged, it's being expanded. And we've got reports of of non-binary teachers encouraging children that are their students to change their genders or declare themselves non-binary and adopt all this pronoun language stuff. And that is deeply bothersome. No doubt about it. I wish they could train truck truckers not to litter on the ceasefire text line. I, I haven't seen that. I, I don't doubt you. And I hope that's not happening, and we'll certainly make a point to mention something to the Trucking Association next time. That's on the ceasefire tax line. Uh, yeah, can you please tell me, this is on the ceasefire tax line from Ray in Long Beach, can you please tell me in which paragraph of the U.S. Constitution does it guarantee an individual the right of not being offended by the words, decisions, or actions of another individual? Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, Ray, and we agree with you and have pointed that out as well, that something that is, I think, a unique feature of our nation in which our freedom is grounded, the freedom of speech in particular, with very reasonable restrictions on that, is that you do not 
have the right under our Constitution to not be offended. In fact, it's quite the opposite in that you have the right to offend. Now, being offended is not objective. It's very subjective. It literally is in the eyes of whoever has deemed themselves to having been offended. And you can't just dream up stuff and say, that offends me. Wearing leggings somehow is discriminatory. I I have a hard time just understanding what the heck that even means. It's really uh, a problem. And just another attack from the side of people. They want to wear the britches hanging down, showing their rear end. That's what it boils down to, Terry's upholstery. Sad but true. We just don't seem to be rearing our children to be more respectful and, and just more cognizant of their appearance in a way that projects respect and stability and decency and morality. Coming right back on Middays after this break, the news is coming your way. Dr. Jerry Weiland at 12.05. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Two of Midday Super Talk Mississippi. We are in the Element Wealth Studios on this Friday Eve. The weather's looking decent for the weekend. Oh, yeah. But it, dang, has it been raining. And when it's raining, it's torrents. Oh, gosh, I hope the climate change folks aren't out there saying, I told you, Gerard, it's changing. It doesn't rain. No, it's rained like that before, as I recall, in my years in Mississippi. I just happen to be observing it right now. No big deal. Calm down, dang it. (laughs) Man, oh man. Uh, I told you, Dr. Jerry Weiland, pediatrician and immediate past president of the Mississippi State Medical Association, in the Element Well Studios at 12.05, an hour from now, going to discuss the continued baby formula shortage in Mississippi. Also, some challenges with some of the ADHD medications. And also going to talk about postpartum care in Mississippi. Yeah, so on the C. Aspire text line, Ben from Madison asks, any timeline for your op-ed regarding HB 401? HB 401, the bill in the House of Representatives in Mississippi that would uh, very severely restrict the sales of new vehicles in the state. The uh, way in which those vehicles could be sold and purchased. Yeah, so Ben, uh, interesting you asked that because over the break, Alex Payton, our content director here, 
is uh, an outstanding proofreader, and so I would obviously never publish anything like that without a complete proofreading and another set of eyes looking at it. And she is. She just came to talk to me, and we discussed some of the suggested edits. We're going to get it out today, Ben. A lot of folks that was at the Capitol yesterday were asking about it. I want to apologize in advance. It's long. So hopefully you won't glaze over after a couple of paragraphs. And the reason it's long, and I, and I know this to some extent violates a, an opinion piece in terms of the length, but I got a lot to say on this issue. And, um, you know, Rhino, when we hear the left especially talk about how we need to make all these changes based on lived experiences, you've heard that term a lot. Well, what I can say about this issue, I have a lived experience in business, specifically dealing with this dynamic. And so what I wrote in this piece is driven largely by my personal lived experiences. I'll just leave it at that. And that's in an industry that, good grief, changes by the hour. And you either figure out how to respond to change and adapt and uh, improvise and re-engineer or adjust your business to accommodate market dynamics and sell value, or you perish. It's just simple as that. Just simple as that. We used to work with our teams, our fabulous account managers, on focusing on selling value. Negotiate price. Don't sell price. Don't sell, hey, I'm it. I have exclusive rights. you got to buy this from me. No. There's no selling involved in that. There's no value proposition, no value production, no value transfer. you got to figure that out. And this just ain't the car industry. This is all of them, every single industry. But that's good news. And what's driving that is innovation. Because we keep dreaming up. New products, new services, new consumption models. The market dictates it. It makes those decisions. We all benefit from it. That's what's great about it. Hmm. So we'll get that out there. Thank you for asking, Ben, and we'll let you know about that. Go to Fox's homepage and click on Senator... Kennedy's, he's smoking today, says Jerry in Waynesboro. I was having a conversation with some folks at the state capitol yesterday about this rhino. He may be like the only person left over there in the U.S. Senate that has some degree of a sense of humor. Uh, Seriously. Or at least is willing to show it as often. Yeah, I agree. I would say of the senators, you have to give Ted Cruz a bit of a... Kudos for coming out of his shell after running for president and leaning into uh, jokes made at his expense. Look, Trump brought that out of him, you could argue. Oh, yeah. Lion Ted, remember that? And he, he was taken aback. They all were when Trump was labeling them with all sorts of pejoratives at first. But now he takes any opportunity to joke about being the Zodiac Killer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
I've seen that. So, oh, those are good things. But Kennedy may be the only one in there. You've got to have a little sense of humor. My favorite, I may have discussed this before, was South Carolina senator from, I think, back in the 70s, uh, Ernest Hollings. Fritz, they called him, his nickname. And he had just received a, uh, participated in a hearing in the Senate when inflation was rampant. And I think it may have been Paul Volcker that addressed the Senate, Fed chairman at the time, about just his analysis on what was driving the rampant inflation. I want to say it was during the Carter era. I could be wrong about that. Or maybe it was the Reagan right after he got elected and he had inherited the inflation. And, and so Holland says <laughs> to the Fed chair after the uh, rather detailed and somewhat complicated explanation, like all economists typically provide. And uh, he had said, of course, demand is is uh, quite quite brisk and supply is not keeping up, and that's causing the imbalance, which is driving inflation. And, and Holland says, so uh, he also, also had a fantastic, uh, very old-style, sort of old Southern gentleman-type accent, you know, the, where you can insert about five syllables in a word with two. Oh, yeah. Those kind. <laughs> and he says, so three what? Syllable word, or three-letter word becomes two syllables, <laughs> the whoa. Yeah. He said. Well, I do declare. <laughs> he said, so uh, let me get this straight. What you're saying is that there's too much consuming going on out there. <laughs> too much consuming. <laughs> and he would refer to Lloyd Benson. Senator Lloyd Benson, remember, he famously debated Dan Quayle when he was a vice presidential candidate. And, and uh, Fritz Hollings would refer to Lloyd Benson as the, the senator from Texaco, is what you would call him. We need characters like that, again. Got to laugh a little bit about it. So folks are sending images. What is this here? Oh, Bo in Indianola says, uh, this is in response to someone who sent us a text and said the truckers are littering up the landscape. Bo says, truckers are most anti-litter people on highway than anyone. It makes you sick to drive down the highway and see trash. Truck drivers, uh, they drive the roads. We like to look at the nice scenery, so we take care of it. And he sent me a photo of some Looks like some plastic bags full of trash that Bo has collected there, sitting on his floorboard. Pre- appreciate that, Bo. D- have you noticed? Have you been now fifty-five, just a few blocks from here, going south? There's like a gargantuan amount of trash out. It's like somebody just dumped their garbage can out there. What's up with that? It does m- make you mad. It infuriates me, honestly, when you see it. Like, no, this is easy. This is just this is lazy. It's disrespectful. Yeah. Larry McGee says, Senator Kennedy makes me laugh. He said, you're not going to clear up the water in Washington until you get the pigs out of the creek. So true. Great. For us people that are usually driving down... Oh, sorry, that was yesterday, Paul Meridi. He says, you were definitely sterilizing the child. Okay, thank you, Paul. Referring to the, the gender reassignment surgery. And they take such great pride in it. Look, we did a double mastectomy on this 12-year-old. We hysterectomy on this 14-year-old. 
And they're excited about it. They're taking great pride in it. They're praising, heaping on the affection of a child who mutilated their body. That's sick. Just is. You're sick if you think that. It is child abuse. We gotta stop it. The Beatles bumping out of this segment here on Middays. We are once again in the Element Well Studios. Dr. Jerry Weiland at 1205. She's a pediatrician and immediate past president of the Mississippi State Medical Association. We'll be right back. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a Journey record jacket from the 1980s. Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk, Mississippi. favorite, maybe my favorite Bowman. <laughs> Bowie tunes there, David Bowie. Heroes. Because I have behind the scenes called Rhino on the all-hit request line and asked him to play that before, but he read my mind on that. It's a good uh, bump in music. Appreciate that. So, Donnie from Pike County says, you want to see real litter, please come drive down the interstate in Pike County. I've been trying to get someone to do something about it, but it seems like our MDOT doesn't care. It's really ridiculous. Well, Donnie, it's, you know, I don't really want the MDOT out there picking up trash. Why can't the people using the roads, the motorists, quit throwing stuff out of their cars? That way, we wouldn't need the MDOT. I, I hear what you're saying, but they, they've obviously got limited resources as well, and we need them to be focused on what I would think are higher priority issues. I'm not disagreeing with you here, but I think the core problem is why are people dumping their trash on the roads? I don't get it. I don't know what the fines are. For that, Rhino, but I, I think there are some sort of fines and penalties. But, of course, you can't be everywhere and see everything, but maybe we need to step those up. Up to $250 if you're caught littering from a vehicle okay. in the Magnolia State. Should be. Not less than 50 not more than 250 Okay. Well, maybe we'll talk to um, the captain next time we have uh, him on the program about that. But uh, folks got to be respectful of property. Says a lot about responsibility. Says a lot about how people conduct their lives. Says a lot about their propensity and their prospect for success. I mean, it could be argued the same could be said for if you push your buggy back to the corral at the grocery store, or if you just leave it sitting there in the middle of the parking lot. Just common courtesy. Just respect for property. And I would submit if you conduct yourself that way in a, in a public setting, you probably 
have similar issues in your home and in your life. Yeah, it's um, Jerry Clark says use inmates. I believe we do. But I don't know that they can cover every inch of the roads. I say again, quit throwing stuff out of your cars. Now, it's highly likely that the vast majority, if not all of the folks tuned into the show today, they're not the violators here. Uh, My guess is it's people that don't listen, that aren't aware. So they're not hearing our voice. But nonetheless, we're (laughs) going to... We're going to make it known where we stand on that. Don't do it. Watching this uh, debt ceiling debate in Washington is getting an awful lot of attention. And, of course, we got the we got the president, as we said earlier, scheduled to speak a little later, is going to boast about the great Biden economy. So, and there's so much misinformation. There, in the pe- so for the people who want to control the narrative, literally, in our world, in our country, the left, remember, they kind of had a trial run of the disinformation czaress, and she did the little jingle to Mary Poppins, remember that? Information laundering, she called it. These people peddle more disinformation. These same people who want to control all the information you consume, they're the ones that that honestly promote and spread disinformation. So here's an individual named Jeff Tydrick. Who is that? Do you know, Rhino? I got this on Twitter. It showed up in my feed we got to be somebody notable because this particular tweet I'm about to read from yesterday, virtually 24 hours from yesterday, it received 23,000 retweets, 78,000 likes, and 872 quote tweets. T-I-E-D-R-I-C-H. So here's what Mr. Tydrick says. Holy... F and S, fill in the blanks on your own, folks. Donald Trump's tax cuts for the obscenely wealthy are responsible for, in all quotes, a quarter of our nation's entire debt. And Republicans want to cut, all caps, your Social Security to pay for it. And that's what the debt ceiling BS, spelled out, is all about. Effing unacceptable. You're an idiot. You're wrong. You're wrong. The debt sits at $32 trillion. These people hate math, don't they? They're averse to it. Well, I'm going to give you a little math lesson here, Mr. Tedrick. The debt is $32 trillion. The debt was approaching $20 trillion when Donald Trump took office. So how could the tax cuts passed under Trump be responsible for the debt accumulated before he took office? That's number one. Number two, your side has told us repeatedly that the tax cuts would take $2 trillion, reduce revenues by $2 trillion. That's 
according to a CBO estimate, which wasn't. It was 1.5, and it's over 10 years. That means 2017 from when they went into effect till 2027. We're in 2023, Mr. Tiedrich. Third, the tax cuts generated more revenue. The CBO got it wrong because they don't do dynamic scoring. These are just little mathematical nuances Mr. Tiedrich and all those in his ilk don't want to hear, don't want to even try to attempt to understand. Well, to put Tiedrich in perspective, he's one of those weird wackos that had Donald Trump's Twitter set to alert them whenever he tweeted so that they could be one of the first to comment on it and make some snarky, snide remark. So what you're saying is Mr. Tiedrich is searching for a dopamine rush on Twitter. That's what you're saying. That's what I gather out of that. Yeah, that's, that's the entirety of his celebrity. He likes to think that he's a celebrity because of his music, but... Have you ever heard of the band Alligator? <laughs> Is that what he's known for? That's yes. his Okay. Well, he's got 78,000 people that like this. You know, they're as stupid as he is. Oh, yeah. They're stupid as he is. And Dumber then they're the retweeters. So, the $2 trillion, let's just say it's $2 trillion, which is wrong. It's 1.5. It's over 10 years. That does not equal 25% of $31 trillion. But that's what he's telling people. And they're saying, yeah, Mr. Tiedrich's right. It's Donald Trump's tax cuts. And while it is true that those at the upper end of the income scale, from a dollar value perspective, receive more in the tax cuts, fact is, throughout the income levels, tax reductions were incurred. Even if your income is low, you received a reduction. You experienced a reduction in your income taxes. I challenge anybody to show me a sample, an example where that's not the case, because it's mathematically impossible. The people who mostly saw their taxes increase are the rich people in the blue states that all supported Joe Biden. That's because there was a limit put on the amount of ridiculously high state and local taxes they could deduct. You live in California. You live in New York. You live in Connecticut. You live in New Jersey. You pay ridiculous property taxes and income taxes to the state. Ridiculous. And you can't deduct but $10,000 of it. Well, heck, in California, which is a wash in millionaires, most of them are paying $100,000 a year, some of them. When you got $3 million houses, $4 million houses, plus the millionaire's 13% surtax and on and on and on, well, you can't deduct deduct but 10000 So it's kind of curious to me that the Democrats, who obviously want to repeal the Trump tax cuts, have been working feverishly to get rid of the salt cap to benefit their rich donor cronies in the deep blue states. But yet they're always clamoring, we got to increase taxes on the wealthy. Not my wealthy donors, though. we got to decrease theirs. You're a bunch of liars. It's just simple as that. Tell the dang truth. You're just a liar and you're an idiot, Mr. Tiedrich. You can't do math. And you're lying to these people who all lap it up. I challenge him to a debate 
on taxes one-on-one. Me and you, Mr. Tudor. Coming right back, Marty Stewart bumping us out. Attention, adoring fans. It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Well, studios, it's middays on Friday Eve. Morgan Wallen. Oh, we got a giveaway. I see that. I think so, right? We got a giveaway coming up here. We just this hot off the press here. You know, country music superstar Morgan Wallen coming to Oxford. We're going to give you an opportunity to win tickets starting Wednesday. Okay, there you go. Starting Wednesday next week. We'll let you know how you can win this Morgan Wallen ticket giveaway is brought to you by First South Farm Credit, King's Daughters Medical Center, Jumpstart Test Prep, and Toyota of Brookhaven. Appreciate that. Yeah, Morgan Wallen, going to be up in Oxford at the bot. Entertaining. My understanding is it's like sold out. Big ticket. Yeah, looking forward to that. So... Went off on a rant here on Mr. Tedrick. Now you've informed me he's in some musician. Well, he tries. Okay. So, in other words... His main celebrity status comes from being an activist and a Twitter troll towards Donald Trump. I got you. Like Rob Reiner, somewhat in that ilk, huh? That genre. Yeah, he hasn't done a whole lot in the last decade except just be a butt on social media. Well, he was a butt here. I mean, to even have a conversation about finance... Fiscal policy, taxes, budget. Why do you have to inject all the profanity in there? What is it, you think that's making your point? Boosting your point? It's not. It makes you look like a fool. Not only are you wrong, your profanity is disgusting. It just is. There's just no need for that. And I, you know, I sit here thinking, should I apologize for calling him out as an idiot and all the people that retweeted it? I, I really. It's hard for me to do that. I just I, It's not my nature uh, to hurl the personal insults at people like that. But this is the kind of stuff that really drives me crazy because so many people... It's misinformation on steroids. And so many people lap it up because they so desperately want to believe it. Yeah, I told you that Donald Trump, those tax cuts, yep, those are no good. That's why we can't ever have anybody like that again, except you're just wrong. That was one of the best, in my view, maybe the best thing he did the whole time he was president. And here's what they won't acknowledge. I want you guys to think about this. So the Biden economy 
has caused us all pain, mainly in the form of inflation. What they don't want to think about is what it would look like if we didn't have the Trump tax cuts. Your taxes would be higher, the economy would be doing worse, and the very thing that got them in uh, in office, or I should say, uh, kept the Republicans for, from uh, scoring so many victories in the midterms, I believe is because we didn't witness broad unemployment. People generally think about their economic situation based on whether or not they have a job. That's number one. Inflation, the cost of living, number two. So it's the Trump tax cuts, I could argue, that created that situation. Because so much of that, of course, applied to corporations. They're the people that hire people, and small businesses as well. Big-time tax cuts. And they just they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that. I've argued the same about what salvaged Barack Obama's presidency was the 2010 midterms, when the Tea Party was active and swept Republicans into House, in the House to take control, in what Barack Obama described as a shellacking. (laughs) That salvaged his presidency because it kept him from enacting more bad policy. We could have got him reelected, honestly, because they put the halt on that. Because he had big plans. He just spent all his political capital and time getting Obamacare passed. That was really the main accomplishment. That and uh, Dodd Frank. That was it. And after that, the rest of his agenda put on ice. It salvaged him. <laughs> That's crazy to think about. That he, he just. Getting in there and keeping him, preventing him from pursuing more bad policy. Speaking of which, this is where I think the Republicans miscalculated, folks. We talked a lot about the fair tax. So the holdouts in the speaker election, this was one of their requirements, as you recall. They had a, you know, a list of issues and, and uh, demands, if you will from Kevin McCarthy in order to gain their support for him as speaker and put him in the chair. And one of them was that he agreed to take up a bill that would replace the present income tax structure with a fair tax, which is a consumption tax. So he honored his commitment, except he's told the chamber, I don't support it. Well, when the speaker says, I don't support this, probably not going to get passed. Here's the problem. This is where I'm getting to. Today, you'll see, I'm predicting, Joe Biden, he's going to pounce on this. And he'll give some examples, and he'll make some statements that won't be right. They never are. But the people will lap it up. He he wants you to go to the grocery store and add 30% to everything you buy. That's what he'll say. And so the problem with a fair tax now, which is a consumption tax, which would apply to everything you buy, no matter what your income is, that's a lot easier sale when everybody's paying income taxes. But now we got half the country not paying income taxes. So they see this as a major tax increase. 
And he'll effectively sell that. Really will. My concern is this is going to hurt in the next election cycle. The Republicans had this fair tax they wanted to put on you, and everything you buy would go up by 30%. Well, to a person that pays no income tax, that's a lot. Now, to those of us who think everybody ought to have a little skin in the game, because right now what we got are half, more than half the country not paying income taxes that are dictating to the half to do what the world looks like, what the country looks like, what fiscal policy and economic policy should be. They have that control. And the politicians are down for that because they get elected. They align with them in that respect. And that's what's going to happen today. So I think that it was a miscalculation just because the people in the House, on the Republican side, a small number, just had to have this bill out there. And they this is something they've been working on for decades, it seems like, a long time. And it's not that it's such a bad idea, it's just it's difficult to sell. And they really haven't spent any time, and they don't honestly have the pulpit. Uh, just, no, say it ain't so. Libertarians <laughs> didn't apply even a modicum of game theory. That's what's missing in the argument. It all sounds great and on paper and very noble, very fair. It's a fair tax. Except when the president, who does have a pulpit, is in the other party and opposes it, tells the masses, and he'll, I'm telling you, he'll have some examples. Like I said, you think the price of eggs are high now, wait till the Republicans pass their fair tax. And to the people out there, they're saying, wait, they're going to get rid of the income tax. I don't pay any, but they're going to add a consumption tax. Yeah, I buy stuff. That's going to apply to me. Therefore, my taxes are going up. And then they'll say, and this is just helping their rich friends because they'll, they won't pay it, uh, taxes on all that income they earn. And they'll just hoard their money and won't spend it, won't pay those consumption taxes. I can see it now. The other big narrative, of course, is Republicans want to take away your Social Security and Medicare. And now Kevin McCarthy's going all over the place having to say, no, that's not what we said here. So Joe Manchin, he's come out now in the last 24 hours and said, oh, he thinks he's so smart. I got a real easy fix to the Social Security problem, talking about the financial problem of the program. We just need to increase the cap. He didn't, by the way, didn't provide a number. The cap presently, $160,000 a year. What that really means is once you earn that much in a year, you're no longer paying into Social Security. 6.2% is the rate. Once you hit $160,000 a year of income, um, talking about wages, income that's subject to the Social Security tax, you're no longer paying it. So he makes the point that, well, for a millionaire, they're only paying into Social Security for two months. Right. But they're paying more than the person who earns half that much over a year. That doesn't come into consideration. And when they retire, they don't get any more money. They just paid for their co-workers' Social Security. But that's fair. We'll come right back here on Middays. Dr. Jerry Wyland in at 12.05. Stay with us. Three. Come on. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right. We are back. On Super Talk Mississippi.
back. We thank you so much for joining us. Middays from the Element Well Studios today on In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar. You'll hear an interview with former NFL star and pastor Corey Miller. Right? It's coming up today. I think so. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by visitmississippi.org. You can hear the show each Thursday and Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. on most Supertalk Mississippi stations, supertalk.fm, and available everywhere you listen to podcasts. So yesterday we heard Representative Nicholas Bain talk about this bill that would extend the jurisdiction of the Capitol Police all the way up here to County Line Road, just not... Too far from where we're presently positioned. Take a big chunk of Jackson out of the city's jurisdiction. Now we're seeing legislation that would also transfer control and ownership of the water system serving Jackson to the state. Haven't read too much into the into the details of that, but I believe that also means the state would receive the revenue from operating the water system from the uh, the public that is served, households and the various business addresses that receive water from the city. Huh. Got to think about that. Now, that seems like maybe that we, we now that we got $600 million coming to the water system from the, the uh, omnibus bill, which is just a big old chunk of pork, we just call it what it is, and we don't have the money. We just print that and add it to the debt. But it's the Trump tax cuts that created the debt. Oh, Not yeah. this $600 million that we just print out of thin air, send to Jackson. Uh, you know, it's so is, is the state on the hook for, obviously, the cost of operations and uh, both the OPEX and the CAPEX associated with the water system? Um, hmm. I think there's going to be some uh, strong sentiment, strong, strong uh, feelings on both sides of that argument. The mayor has already said, nope, we're not doing that. we got to keep the revenue. But there's a lot of good it's done. Yeah, exactly. They squandered it and mismanaged it. Believe Wyatt Emmerich, who publishes the Northside Sun, was on with Paul this morning talking about this. He seems to be in favor of it, best I could tell. And he made the point that, you know, the cities are subdivisions of the state. And so the state does have some authority there. Have to get over it there, Mayor. Wouldn't be necessary if it wasn't all screwed up. That's just simple as that. That's going to be interesting to watch where that goes. Something else that happened, Rhino, that's related to a discussion we had uh, Tuesday, I believe, with Grant Callen of Empower and Leah Ferretti in advance of the school choice rally held at the Capitol yesterday, is uh, we had just touched on the state of Iowa's plan to implement what would be really historic school choice, a school choice measure in the state of Iowa. The governor, Kim Reynolds, signed it. It passed. And uh, this is absolutely perhaps the most 
aggressive school choice legislation, most sweeping in the nation's history, signed by Governor Kim Reynolds yesterday into law in the state of Iowa. She says, for the first time, we will fund students, not systems. I thought that was a a really good, succinct, direct, accurate quote. Parents, not the government, Governor Reynolds goes on to say, can now choose the education setting best suited to their child, regardless of their income or zip code. Iowa has affirmed that educational freedom belongs to all. Well, this really is groundbreaking here. Truly is. The union's got to be freaking out over this. You got to be. Oh, everybody on the left is losing their minds (laughs) with all these spoon-fed scenarios that will never come to pass. But it's more disinformation. It's more just inaccuracies and... Just flat out lies. Well, it's about because it. if you're a liberal, a leftist, a Democrat, or those that support those, you have the attention span of a goldfish. That's why they <laughs> believe all this nonsense about the trunk tax cuts. They forget how good life was in 2019. Yeah, that's true. You're absolutely right about it. That's a great point. They're, they have forgotten what it was like then. Everybody was working lowest unemployment and uh, ever. Across the demographic demographic spectrum, thing inflation less than two percent, markets buzzing, interest rates next to nothing, without driving inflation. You're right; they forgot how good we had it. Coming right back with Dr. Jerry Wyland on middays in the Element Well Studios. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone, to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. We are coming at you live from the Element Well Studios on this Friday Eve. Joining us now, Dr. Jerry Wyland, a pediatrician and immediate past president of the Mississippi State Medical Association. Dr. Wyland, always good to have you in. Good to see you again. Thank you. Yeah. So let's start out with the, the baby formula shortage something I'm sure that you run into as a, as a pediatrician, that seemed to have just been top of the news there for a while. Haven't heard a lot about it. What's the situation? Well, the situation is actually getting better. The, okay. the problem happened a, a spring of 2020 with the closing of a Similac plant in Michigan, Sturgis, Michigan. Um, the, there's only four big players in baby formula in the United States and Similac, which is Abbott and Mead Johnson are the biggest players. Um, In addition to having a large share of the market, they also have a huge share of the WIC market, which is women, infant, children throughout the United United States. Each state, uh, it's a federally uh, administered program, but each state gets to contract 
with a formula company. Mississippi has been with Mead Johnson, which is Infamil, for quite some time. I believe Louisiana is currently with Similac. So, so the, you, it really goes from one to the other. Um, it, it's, it's usually between those two. So when you have the shutdown because of concerns of contamination, then you had a huge chunk. I believe it was about 40% of the formula market was just not available. And that meant that all the other providers were there. There, there was a demand for the other providers and there was just a shortage. I mean, there just was not enough to go around because the people who were using Similac would move over to Infamil. And then in the state of Mississippi, about 55% of our children qualify for WIC, and we have Infamil. So there was a run on that, and it was not available to the state. Now, the other thing that was kind of a perfect storm about this, again, which this happened last spring, so the spring of 2022, um, Mississippi WIC which is administered through the Department of Health, uh, moved over starting sometime in the middle part of 2021 to an e-card. So before that, you, you, you're, you're the mom and you have a baby and you would go down to the WIC office or actually the health department and you would pick up your month's supply of formula. Yep. And you take it home and you would use it. But when they went to the e-card, you then had a, a, credit card that was loaded each month with the with the amount you could have and you were permitted to go to certain retailers and get the formula which sound which of course they were trying to make it more convenient for the moms and a little bit more cost effective for the state because you no longer had to have the warehouses and that sort of thing unfortunately you're going to give somebody a card to go get something and there's none to be had uh it became an issue okay is there a problem uh, with the, the child uh, sort of just moving between different brands of formula? Do they, if they start on one, do they, they need to stay with that? Because you, you mentioned that there are only a handful and that we had shortages of one and then somebody else filled the vacuum. Is that a problem, moving between them like that? Well, it, it's not a huge problem. We'd, we'd like to stay with the same one if we possibly can. Now, it is a problem if the baby cannot take one of what we call the elemental or the 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 entryway formulas, which are all cow milk based. Okay. okay. So once you move to the soy, which, again, is not much more expensive, and then you move to the one, people who have significant allergies, then you, then you start having a problem moving from one to the other. Okay. But, um, I thought you were going to ask me what my husband asked. Why can't they just Why can't they just drink milk? So, um, well, yeah, I, okay. I was <laughs> going to ask you what did we do before we had this farm, the, formulas? The, the um, you know, we we try in in infant nutrition to to mimic human breast milk as best we can. Again, okay. we do as pediatricians and physicians who take care of babies promote breast milk because you know breast milk is made for human babies and it's the best thing for them but the the manufacturers have tried very hard to simulate that they they start with cow cow milk but they add all these other dha and products like that 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 mimic human breast milk so that we get the best brain development so if we're going to use milk and of course some of my parents had to do that then you want to be then you have to make sure you um, add vitamins and that kind of thing and make sure that it's whole milk until age two so okay all right what about uh this report we've seen where there are some uh shortages of adhd medication that's a whole nother problem we're going to talk about that yeah tell me (laughs) what you know about that what I know about that yeah. is that it it has 
made my life a big pain for the past several months. Really? And my nurse is about to quit. Why is that? Because you can't, because get, can't it? get it. Huh. You can't, the, the, you know, and that is, I do have a little problem moving from one ADHD medicine to the other. Okay. And this, and this is where I have a little problem with some of the insurance companies because they mm. think that we can, you know, they're all M&Ms, just different colors. And it's really those medicines. I have a little more trouble moving from one to the other. But in the last few months, I've been having to move my patients from one to the other. And sometimes it's because of shortages and sometimes it's because their insurance will not pay for what I'd like to put them on. I see. Hmm. It's, it's, I just haven't heard a lot about that well, until going very to. recent. I'm, I'm okay. Not, yeah, We're going to start hearing it, about it. 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 It's, it's terrible. One of the um, Concerta is a big ADHD medication that has a generic methylphenidate ER. The manufacturer is not making it. They're, they're, they're kaput. Stop. They're, okay. they're not making it. They're so, not making it. But the, most insurance companies will not cover the brand name. So now I have to move all of those children oh, who are see. on the generic to something else that's not the same. Mm. And, you know, I feel for the teachers. I do. I feel for the family and teachers because these medications actually help these children. They help them to concentrate. They help them to learn. And, you know, you can say what you want to about it. But these, it, it, my patients, I, I don't give you the medicine unless I think it's going to help you. And then I don't. And then I make sure that it's actually helping you and not affecting you in any other way. How do you test that? Say so you, you prescribe it and the patient starts uh, taking it. Uh, do they come back for some we sort come of back. test? Yeah. We how come do, back. How do you we come back and we check it? them. Well, we, we talk, we ask about, you know, school performance and, you know, how are things at home, what are, what's our behavior like? Is it helping your behavior? Is it hurting your behavior? Yeah. Um, you know, some people use questionnaires, which sometimes help, but usually I, I just talk about how okay. things are. You know, how is it going? Are we making better grades? Are we able to do our homework? And, you know, if the child's old enough, they'll tell you, man, this stuff helps. Yeah. Well, I, I have uh, I can say in my youth coaching career that I have uh, coached kids that, say, in middle school, that would be on the medication while they were in school, during the school session, and then in the summer – their parents would take them off. I don't know if that was rep- recommended or they were just fearful for maybe using it too much. But I could tell the difference in the ability to pay attention and to just concentrate and focus from when they were on it during the session to in the summer when they stopped taking it. It's a different philosophy. I don't insist that – well, some parents insist their child to go ahead and stay on it because they have behavior problems at home and it helps with that. Uh, I know what you're saying. A yeah. lot of parents want to give them a break because they do sometimes grow a little better, eat a little better okay. off the medicine. Uh, sometimes it's a financial thing if the parents are having to pay sure. for this medicine. Um but, but yeah, you, you would notice, and and they notice too. It's just they're they're able to put up with it, and hopefully you are able to also. But this does make yeah. a point if a, if a child is child if they become a teenager and still do better with the medication we would hope they take it as they learn to drive and yeah, do those things yeah. where they need to concentrate yeah that's it's interesting uh all right so postpartum medicaid and postpartum coverage is uh, an issue that our legislature is uh is considering very strong opinions on both sides of this argument i think it's quite fair to say uh those that generally oppose it would say it's just unnecessary and uh, those that support it uh, can cite all kinds of, uh, of reasons why we should do it. If you were addressing opponents of the legislature, what would you tell them, Dr. Wiley? 
Well, first off, I could go into all the reasons why I think it's very helpful, okay. but I would tell them we've already done it for two years. Why, why, why do we feel like we stopped? We did it during the pandemic. Yeah. This was fantastic. That's right. It was very helpful. It was required during the pandemic. It was helpful. Yeah. It, we, I mean, the, the problem is a lot of people want to see statistics and how you know how we want to prove that it did better. It's hard to to collect that data in such a short well, period of time. But um, uh, you know, in my practice, I saw it it help. I mean, you know, we these moms they 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 go get their health problems taken care of instead of telling me about it, and then I and then I have no place to send, tell them where to go because they have no insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we do um, in in my care of children is at two, four, and six months of age, we have a postpartum depression screen for the moms. We ask the moms, "How are you? How are hmm. you doing?" So, you know, after two months, there's still four and six months that we worry about them having postpartum issues. we got a break right here, but can you continue this discussion on the other side of the break? Okay. Okay. we got Dr. Jerry Weiland, pediatrician and immediate past president of the Mississippi State Medical Association in the Element Well Studios. That keeps Mississippi talking. Now, onto the real part. Dino Mike on Super Talk Mississippi. Wow, I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't. I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't. So good, so good. I got you. The great James Brown bumping us into this segment here on Middays. We're back with you in the Element Well Studios. Dr. Jerry Weiland, pediatrician and immediate past president of the Mississippi State Medical Association, is our guest in the Element Well Studios. So, Dr. Weiland, just going a little bit into this this postpartum coverage issue. So one thing we need to, uh, again, uh, highlight is that during the pandemic, as a result of some fairly significant changes to the Medicaid program, states were were um, required as part of receiving their their increased match from the federal government uh, to cover uh, pregnant women who were under Medicaid as part of that coverage group to extend the postpartum coverage for the mother, not just the child, but for the mother, the child would continue to be eligible. The mother, after 60 days postpartum, is no longer eligible for Medicaid coverage. This extended that out for a year, for 12 months post-delivery. And and just wanted to clarify, so in your experience, you've seen situations where it's important for the mother to to continue to interact with their physician and uh, postpartum, and those that don't have Medicaid coverage just don't go to the doctor after that six, uh, 60-day period of coverage. That's it, correct. It, yeah. uh, there are a large portion of complications from pregnancy that happen in the first couple of months. Okay. But there is at least, and I, I don't have the exact percentages, but there's okay. a, there is at least a significant percent, at least a third, continue to have issues related to the pregnancy for 
up to a year. Okay. And, you know, if you weren't one of those people, congratulations to you. But you, if you are somebody who has a problem with your health because you were pregnant and after 60 days you don't have anywhere to go except the emergency room. Now, these people are going to be seen, Gerard. They, yeah. they don't In get the ER, that, though. Don't get that. And, yes, yes, that's the where they're going to go. And absorb the cost of that because they don't have any coverage, but they're required by law to stabilize them they in the They will ER. be seen. But then they won't get the follow-up, and they won't be seen by their OB specialists. They won't be seen by the people who could actually fix the problem. They're going to be seen by somebody that's going to patch them up and send them out and hope they don't come back. You, You know. Um, as I like, as I mentioned before, the, the 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 most unhealthy thing a healthy woman can do is be pregnant, and <laughs> and you most people most people get fine afterwards, but some people don't. Yeah. Well, I know you're a pediatrician, so I'm assuming thus you primarily focus on the, the treatment and the health of the child, and then that. But you'd be you, surprised you, how much adult well, sure. advice I get. Well, out. sure. I mean, you can't separate the two. Well, yeah. what I find is, you, you know, for and this is one of the reasons why I feel it's important to continue the coverage. You know, I want healthy moms, and if that means giving them some help for 12 months after a pregnancy, then I'd like to do that because the baby cannot be on its own. We don't want these moms getting so sick that they can't take care of the child and some other family member has to take care of this baby who's not going to be able to take care of themselves in the first year. Um, So if we can help these moms, we did it. And I hope at some point we can get some information on how it did help. Other states have that information. Other states, I know Georgia is one that has been doing this for quite some time. Perhaps our legislators could look at that information and see that it has helped them reduce costs because these people are going to be seen but they're going to be in the they're not going to be seen in a proper fashion and they're not going to be seen by the the people they need to see it's an interesting point you make about georgia because georgia is a state that has not expanded medicaid under the traditional expansion program but has in fact expanded postpartum coverage that's kind of interesting because it's one of the 11 states including mississippi that uh, Alabama, Tennessee, Florida, mostly in the South, that have not expanded Medicaid. Uh, You know, I know that maybe it's unfair for those of us that focus on numbers and economics and and, uh, uh, financial matters to say, okay, what, what is this costing us financially, and how could we benefit financially if we would extend this coverage? But it does seem like, uh, Dr. Wyland, that those that are dealing with these situations with these mothers postpartum, maybe they should come address to make their case to the legislature about the various real-life case studies without disclosing any names or confidential medical information, of course, situations they've seen that, that where they have averted bad outcomes, or maybe they've seen bad outcomes that could have been averted and, and, and the like. Because I think there's an opinion coming from those that oppose this that say we just don't see the need for this that you know most of what happens happens in that 60 days and extending that out is really just throwing more money at a, at a situation that that maybe even encourages you know more use of the public systems unnecessarily I, I agree with you. Now, one of the things uh, using the public system, I guess you're referring to maybe having more babies and that sort of Medicaid thing. Medicaid yeah, and, yeah. and the taxpayers paying for that. Right. I think 65% of the babies born in this state are born to but those under Medicaid. I don't think anything's going to deter 
I mean, if you feel like you want to be a mom and you want to be a mom again, you're going to be a mom again. Now, you mentioned Georgia. What I think is uh, what I had uh, really liked was uh, when Mississippi State Medical Association had a task force that looked into possible ways to get more coverage for people, not necessarily expanding Medicaid. But one of the things I thought was exciting was what Arkansas does. I mean, they've been successful in increasing their federal funds and providing it for Private, private insurance. Coverage, yeah. I mean, but that's still covering the working poor. And it's, you know, I hear all the time from legislators, well, we want to cover the working poor. Well, right now we're not. Yeah. These people, they're out there working. They can't really afford insurance. And they do the same thing. They go to the emergency room. They, I mean, they, they clog up the system when they could find a, a, a medical home and be taken care of better. Yeah. So what I would say to that, that I that I've, it's a point I've made to uh, many members of our legislature and in government, is that, and it's something I'm not sure if you're aware of, is recently uh, as part of the Inflation Reduction Act passed at the federal level back in the fall, it made permanent some of the enhancements to the um, Affordable Care Act marketplaces, such that uh, a household with income below 150% of the federal poverty level can obtain private coverage in the exchanges for zero-cost premiums. They still are responsible for out-of-pocket costs, but that maxes out at $3,000 a year. That's the most in the exchanges that uh, a, a person covered by insurance obtained there would pay out of pocket. You know, maybe there's some way that we could get these the working poor, as you referred to, uh, who would meet those eligibility requirements to obtain uh, private coverage, and maybe some way Medicaid or the hospital association who's offered to get involved in funding Medicaid expansion could direct their money to covering the out of pocket cost. Incurred. I agree. I, I mean. It, I just want – I would like the people who are out there working and can't afford yeah. insurance to be able to have a medical home and not have to go through emergency care or ERs and that sort of thing. So I, I did I not I know. That's, that's fantastic. We don't seem to be – It's under the radar, and I'm not sure why, but what I can say, and I know folks that listen to the program on a regular basis, I've probably repeated that exact same scenario 25 times in the last few months. Just try to educate people about it. And it, it, it was actually enacted in 2021, and it was made permanent in 2022. It was temporary in 21, and the data I've asked for is, well, how many of our, our folks that would otherwise be, our, our population otherwise be eligible for Medicaid expansion, the working poor, the able-bodied coverage group that's presently not covered in Mississippi, how many of them were directed to the exchanges to buy cost-free private coverage? I acknowledge they still have out-of-pocket deductibles, but I'd also venture to say that their providers in, in, in um, uh, hospitals, that would probably work with them on their out-of-pocket aspect of that, which, by the way, maxes out at $3,000 so a year, $3,000 a year. So it's better than zero, which is what we're getting now, and clogging up the emergency rooms where they're really not getting the proper care. And that's just costing all of us money. Those are money pits, emergency rooms are, honestly, because so much of that care is not reimbursed. Oh, I agree. Because for what the reason you said, it's the folks that don't have any other option, and they get to the point where they got to go do something. And often when they go in, they're beyond the point 
or they're they're past the point where this would have been a lot less expensive, and we would have had a lot better chance at an outcome if they would have gotten early intervention and treatment. I've heard too many of those stories from practicing physicians that have told me. So I, I, I apologize for kind of going off on that. No, I uh, think that I, I narrative. Just, I, how do we make? I mean, how do we make those kind of things happen? It. I mean. I'm working with the legislators to make sure they understand what's available. And, and Dr. Edney from Department of Health, he's very aware, and he's texted me and said, yeah, we know this, and we're working on educating our team so that they can get the word out as well. But these, just, the moms that qualify for Medicaid are not likely to qualify I, for that. So I, so I think it, that... No, they, they would if they're able-bodied adults, absolutely, with oh. less than 150% of the federal poverty level. Yeah, if their child does, they do. Let's put it that way. Appreciate it, Dr. Wild. Thanks for coming it's on. It's been fun. Come right back with uh, more on Midday. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studios. It's middays on Super Talk Mississippi. Really appreciate Dr. Weiland for coming in. And, and folks, I know that when you ha- start having these um, financial and related discussions with uh, uh, the physicians, that that um, you know they're they're not often. And I, I'm not saying that about Dr. Weiland, but they're not often familiar with all those details and nuances. And you know what? I'm not sure I want them to be. I want them to focus on taking care of people, and let's let the business folks worry about this. But unfortunately, the business aspect of it can impair their ability to do their job. It's just a fact. And I, and I certainly am not a proponent of of Medicaid expansion in that that will just solve the problem. Because we hear that all too often from proponents of it. Yeah, if we just did that, all our problems go away. I absolutely do not believe that. Not for one iota. But what I do think is that pointing fingers, as we have a habit of doing, me included, of all the things that don't work. Well, that's not really feeding the bulldog. That's not solving the problem. It isn't incumbent upon us to work together to devise practical solutions, achievable solutions that will address the issue. We're a compassionate society. We're not going to let people suffer. We're just not, despite what the left tells you. You see it all the time, Roto. You're pushing granny off the cliff. People are dying in the streets. No, they're not. If they are, it's their own damn choice. And some of them do choose that life. That's what's even sadder. No, that's not true. I don't know, and I I know you've got more first-hand experience with this than I do. I don't know a single medical doctor out there that would say, oh, you can't pay? You just have to die. Do you? No. 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 Now, they don't like it. They don't like the fact that they have to do their job 
without being compensated? Who would? Nobody wants to do that. That's not fair. And it's also not true what the left says. Health care is a human right. No, it's not. Health care is the work product of humans. Was it a right when we were evolving 500 years ago? There was no health care. You just died. And think through time. All the health care we enjoy today, that was the creation of human innovation. Nobody has a right to that. There's no right. I don't think that that rises to that level. So let's just quit that. That's not the right argument. And and you know what? It doesn't produce it anyhow. Just declaring it as a right. Because... You could, they would point to those who have completely adopted socialized medicine. The U.K., parts of Europe, Canada. It's a freaking disaster. Let's be honest about it. It's a disaster. Oh, yeah. You go to the doctor, and the doctor goes, yeah, it looks like you got a broken arm. We can schedule for an X-ray in six weeks. Exactly. So that's not the solution either. Oh, but it's a right there. Uh, yeah, a right in six weeks? I might not have an arm hanging on my body in six weeks. That's not just hyperbole. Some of these situations are a lot more acute, a lot more serious, a lot more threatening. Sorry, you just have to wait. Oh, you still get it, and it's paid for. You just don't get it when you need it. And they get complacent as well, because they can. And deep down in those countries, they know the system sucks. They do. That's why, if you are a visitor to those countries, you go to the front of the line so you don't notice how right. bad their health care system sucks. I've heard that, too. And, of course, the wealthy in those societies, oh, they circumvent all that. They circumvent it. Totally. And that's where we're headed here. If we don't work together, my fear is that every day that goes by that we don't address this issue, we move closer to what we don't want which is completely federal government-run, single-payer Medicare for all. That's what bothers me. So let's come up with some practical, innovative, creative solutions to these problems. And, and this is not something that can be solved based on the, the knowledge and I think the recommendations of just one segment one group of stakeholders, it's got to come from a cross-section. You need clinicians and medical doctors. You need lawyers. You need lawmakers. You need, this doesn't come up a lot, Rhino, you need ethicists. You really do. You need folks that really do, folks that are involved in philosophy of ethics, and morals. They need to have a seat at the table. Might not agree with everything they say. They may show up and say, oh yeah, health care is a human right, Medicare for all. No. We need people that, because they're very complicated, dicey subjects. And as we create more technology, it gets more complicated. Just does. And we need them at the table as well. We need the clergy, perhaps. We need faith leaders at the table. We need a cross-section to talk about this. Well, if you bring faith leaders to the table, then the left is immediately going to walk away from the table. 
Well, because the party of inclusion is not very inclusive. Oh, they're the most exclusive in uh, ilk in the country. The party of inclusion. The party of tolerance is the most intolerant. The American left is the most intolerant ilk on the planet, arguably. They've made that bed. They got a lie in it. They just are. You don't agree with me? You're an idiot. Yeah. We got to have a grown up conversation about this, and it does require lots of smart people getting around the table to talk about it. Speaking of a guy who ain't real smart, we already talked about this Jeff Tiedrick guy. Oh, Robert Reich. <laughs> he says if Republicans actually gave a crap about controlling the debt, they'd repeal the Trump tax cuts and pass taxes for the rich. But we know this isn't about that. This is about a backdoor ploy to force cuts to Social Security and Medicare. We cannot let them get away with this. You're a liar. You just are. Virtually everything that came out of his mouth in that statement was wrong. Totally wrong. And nobody, and so this got gazillions of likes and retweets by people that think just like he does. And so I follow him just so I can keep up with the nonsense that he's, uh, he's dumping on us every day. And so I did tweet a reply, not that he reads my replies, of course. I said, okay, record federal revenues have been produced under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. The Trump tax cuts soothe, I would argue, a little of the pain imposed by Biden's economy. Repealing them would make Americans poorer and bolster deficits. Of course, with the exception of your rich crony buddies in the coastal states that apply these egregious property and income taxes. They would benefit. And they're all leftists. He fails to acknowledge that. Basically, what he's saying is the only way to control our deficits and debt is you just got to let go of more of your money. You got to send more to Washington because they're so efficient. They're such great stewards and uh, take such great care of your money. No, they're the most inefficient managers of money on God's green earth. No, we don't want to send more to you. And of course, Hakeem Jeffries, you know who he is. He knows his ABCs. He's the old ABC guy. We have to dig that one up, play it again sometime. He, of course, was the choice, the nominee for Speaker of the House from the Democrats in the House. He had no chance, but he got every single Democrat vote in every round of voting while the Republicans were trying to work that out. He says, this was two days ago, right-wing extremists stuck Americans with trillions of dollars in debt on failed wars and tax cuts for the super wealthy. We will not be lectured about fiscal responsibility by this crowd. With a straight face, this guy says that. And the people eat this up. 50,000 likes, 12,000 retweets. I pay attention to stuff like that. And the reason I do is because we sit in our bubble here and think everybody thinks like us, because most people in our world generally do align with our positions on these matters and then you get away from here and you realize heck it's a big old world out there and they lap up all this crap the the thing that really aggravates me is this belief they hold that all money emanates and originates 
from uh, with and from government. It starts out as their property. We just let you keep a little bit of it. <laughs> but it has nothing to do with you creating value for society. No, it's the benevolence of the federal government allowing you to keep a little bit. Not a word ever about cutting the amount we spend as a way to address this problem. Ever. In fact, quite the opposite. We've got the final segment on middays coming up after this. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live on Super Talk Mississippi. Oh yeah, little Kenny Loggins, the voice of the eighties. Yep, I'm not sure anybody else. Recorded as many songs for movies. That from, of course, Caddyshack. He was prolific. <laughs> awesome. Top Gun. Footloose. Yep. All the above. He was also uh, among the celebrity vocalists who were uh, part of the USA for Africa. Remember that? We Are the World. He's in there as well. What a star-stunned lineup of vocalists that was from the 80s. Uh, re, uh, produced and directed by Quincy Jones, right? Remember him out in the front? And he did a few, didn't he? Carolyn Starkville says, Thanks, Gerard, for all you do to work to make things more efficient for our daily lives. Appreciate that, Carol. Do y'all know anything about, also, Carol says, China isolation pods? Yeah, we do, and we've talked about that. They've, to some extent, ended it. I, I read a report last night that... They have experienced so much COVID death that the funeral homes can't accommodate. You seen that? It's sad. I've seen some of the photos. Oh, yeah. They've got satellite imagery of the same funeral home pre-pandemic or in a lesser used time frame. And then you've got satellite photos of the same funeral home, and it's just cars lined up, people in and out, and... That's the sad part is you you still get to spend some time with your dearly departed, but it's about three minutes. Yeah, and there um, some just simply can't get in. The bodies are subject to decay. They're resorting to other means of taking care of the dead. It's, it's incredible, and it's because of their bad lockdown communist COVID policy. They don't have any natural immunity. They don't have... A, a effective vaccine. They refuse to let... Remember, Trump offered. They refuse to let the West help because, oh, we're going to show our billion, whatever it is, number of people that that capitalism kills you, but our communist system will keep you alive. Yeah, sorry. Didn't work out that way. They don't want you to see those images either, of no. course. Now, they do have... I've, I've seen reports of where they've built a couple different compounds... That I guess you could call isolation pods, where it's it looks like a gigantic hotel or condominium oh, you would man. see in like uh, Gulf Shores or Destin or somewhere like that, where it's a skyscraper with rooms on every floor, and those are for international travelers coming in to quarantine for I want to say 
You have to do at least 48 hours. Unbelievable. Depending on where you're coming from. So on the ceasefire tax line, line uh, sounds like another example if we need insurance reform, not health care reform. Now, we need all the above, and don't have time to get into the, the really wonky details here today, but if you took the top five insurers, which provide private coverage for 85 to 90% of those in this country with private coverage, you added up in aggregate all their annual net profit. It equals what Apple produces. And I'm not defending insurance companies here. I'm just passing on the facts, the financial facts. Their aggregate top five insurers, giant companies, Cigna, Aetna, United Healthcare, the Blue Cross Group, etc., their aggregate net profit equals what Apple produces in less than two quarters by themselves. It amounts to about 1% of the total health care economy, the total spending on health care. If you cut that 1% out, just said no profit for the insurance companies, then you would have a 1% savings. And you may say, well, they're just not efficient. They have too much overhead. They are, by law, required to pay out 80% of their premiums in the form of claims. That was actually enacted in Obamacare. I'm not defending insurance companies. I'm just sharing the facts, the financial realities. Also says, I thought the working poor was supposed to be covered by Obamacare. Yeah, it's a complicated deal, too. There's what's called a coverage gap in that Medicaid, even without expansion, will cover able-bodied adults. It it differs by state, but it's less than 100% of the federal poverty level. In Mississippi, it's 45, I believe. Just uh, just so you'll know, 45%, that's about $6,000 a year. $6,000. Who can live off that? And we have a number of people in this state that have income that is um, in that that category where they're covered if they got 6000 or below, but between 6000 and 14000 the coverage gap, they don't qualify for Medicaid because it doesn't cover able-bodied adults. They don't qualify for Obamacare because that starts at 100% of the federal poverty level. It gets a little complicated, but what I shared earlier about the changes made there where between 100 and 150 percent, they qualify for free private coverage. They just have to cover the out-of-pocket costs. Yeah, we got to promote that more. Uh, Mose gave us a account of him going to the emergency room where his portion was 87 bucks. You're very fortunate, Mose. It just depends on what you had done, various services, the way they get covered. We pay more and can't afford to use it, yeah, because the high deductibles and and, um, I think they're talking about uh, private coverage. Some doctors won't see you if you have an outstanding balance. Thanks for sharing that with me. I'd like to know more about that. I just haven't encountered that, but not sure. The doctor probably doesn't even know. Back with you tomorrow. Thanks for joining us. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.